Coming up on the Rami La Vie podcast, you might know by now, Aaron Judge hit his 60th home run, and then Giancarlo one-upped him with a grand slam walk-off. I was in the building at Yankee Stadium, so we have instant reaction in the car ride back, so the microphone quality is not great, uh, but I hope you can bear with me. It's just instant raw reaction from last night at Yankee Stadium. Um, and then we have a full football podcast that we recorded earlier in the day on Tuesday before we went to the game. So lots of football content recapping uh, what was week two and previewing week three. Lots of stuff on this episode. It's a loaded episode. So uh, stick around. Stay tuned. Buckle in because this is some crazy stuff that we're seeing. Uh, just not normal what we got to witness with Aaron Judge. So, um, yeah, all that and a whole lot more coming up next. Here's the 3 1. Drill deep to left field. There it goes. Number 60. Slide over, babe. You've got some company. That one's drilled to left field. Is it high enough? See ya. Wow. Just wow. That's all I can say right now. Honestly, there's not much to say. I'm in the car right now on my way back from Yankee Stadium, uh, and I'm still in complete and utter shock and awe. I had to watch the videos back. I pulled over at a rest stop to get gas and to watch the videos back because I like, I don't know. I just don't believe what I just witnessed. Uh, like I said, I, I recorded this podcast earlier, so you're going to hear me coming up a little bit later. But uh, if you're hearing me now, it's because something crazy happened and something crazy did happen. So uh, I told you on Monday's pod that I was going to be driving into New York to see the Yankees play because when history's on the line, I have one rule. When history's on the line, I show up. That's what I do. And so with Aaron Judge approaching history, hitting his 59th home run on Sunday, the day off Monday and then me working Wednesday nights and Thursday nights, the only opportunity for me to go was Tuesday night. So immediately before the tickets got out of hand, I said to myself, I'm going to go because he just hit 59. That means it's going to be a mob at Yankee Stadium to see him at 60. So Tuesday is a day that works for me. Tuesday, the Yankees are home. It's against the Pirates. They're 30 games under 500, but who cares? I'm going to go. I get in my car and I drive three and a half hours to the Bronx Yankee Stadium. I get there and there was a buzz from the minute you got inside the building, even outside the building. When they announced him in the starting lineup, the place went berserk. It was just a wild scene from the get-go. But then the game starts. It's a regular baseball game. There's ups and downs. Yankees are getting dominated by this kid Ortiz who's making his second career Major League start because that's typical for the Yankees. It's not like this guy is a top prospect either. He's the number 30th ranked prospect in the Pittsburgh Pirates system. And he's dominating the Yankees early on. They can't get, seem to get a hit. But then Harrison Bader comes up and he starts to come through for the Yankees. The Yankees are down 1-0. Harrison Bader hits an RBI single to tie the game at 1. And then scores later in that inning on a great dash around the bases. Shows off the wheels. And the Yankees ultimately take a 2-1 to lead. I got to see Nasty Nestor, and let me tell you, the oohs and ahs from the crowd as he was going through his funky windup. Every time he did the leg kick a little longer, all of a sudden the whole crowd starts gasping. So that was kind of fun to see, although I've seen Nestor pitch before. I could, but I told you before this game, and you'll hear that coming up later in the episode, I didn't care about the outcome of the game. I didn't care about the Yankees winning or losing. Yeah, you have to be teams that are 30 games under 500 if you're going to prove to me that you're a legitimate playoff contender that can actually make a run. I said that in the podcast that I won't trust this team until I see more from them. But they didn't show a lot more tonight. They battled back a couple times, led mostly by the newest Yankee, Harrison Bader, who may become a fan favorite. I jokingly said on Twitter that this kid's going to have a lot to live up to because people are treating him like he's Mickey Mantle just because he's not Aaron Hicks. Well, if one game is any evidence, he might be Mickey Mantle. 
the way he played tonight. That was insanity from Harrison Bader. But like I said, the game goes on, and the Yankee bullpen, which is going to be a major, major question mark in October, completely crumbles. And I put out a poll. When Clay Holmes comes into the game after the Yankees blow the lead, the Yankees are now down 5-4, and Clay Holmes comes into the game in the top of the eighth. And I put out a poll that says, who trusts Clay Holmes less, Yankee fans or Clay Holmes? Because he clearly lacks any confidence at all. In that spot, he gives up the three-run homer, and now the Yankees are down 8-4. But like I said, the reason I was there was for Aaron Judge. So let's go through the Aaron Judge at-bats. And I apologize if I'm all over the place. Like I said, I'm driving in the car right now. This is kind of just raw, instant reaction, kind of diarrhea of the mouth. In his first at-bat, Aaron Judge, the whole place is standing. He leads off the bottom of the first, and he grounds out. His second at-bat in the third inning, he grounds out also. Now, his third at-bat was interesting because the Yankees were rallying. That was the first rally, and he walks. And it's just, to me, astonishing how he still has such incredible control of the strike zone with all the pressure. Like, my heart was racing every time he was at the plate. Every single person is standing, and I have all the videos of everyone with their cell phone cameras out. And everyone standing every time he came up to the plate, the buzz in the building was exactly as I'd expect. And by the way, even if he hadn't hit the home run, I would have said, yeah, it was worth it to go and see that because the buzz in the building, seeing something like that at a sporting event was something I really haven't experienced for an individual athlete. And he comes up that third plate appearance and he walks. And the fact that he has control of that strike zone to walk in that spot was insane. And then the fourth at bat was the one where everyone's expecting it. Yankees take the 4-3 lead but the bases are still loaded in the bottom of the seventh. And Judge comes to the plate with the bases loaded. There's nowhere to put him. And he gets a 3-1 pitch and he misses it or just fouls it off. Fouls off a couple pitches, but ultimately chases a strike, a fastball up out of the zone for strike three. And you think, well, maybe he gets one more crack at it. But now the Yankees blow the lead. And you think, all right, maybe Judge will have one more opportunity in the ninth inning. Maybe. But there's no guarantees at this point. And then the top of the eighth, when it's all falling apart for the Yankees, it's looking bleak. And then the bottom of the eighth, the Yankees come up at the bottom of the order. Seven, eight, nine. If one of them gets on, Aaron Judge is leading off. Aaron Judge will be on with the runner on. And down four runs, Aaron Judge at the plate with a chance for history and a chance to cut into the lead. All of a sudden it feels like, yeah, this is not so crazy anymore. Maybe Aaron Judge can actually do this. Maybe Aaron Judge can actually hit a home run, cut into the lead a little bit, and it'll mean something. But the Yankees go down in order, go down without a fight at all. And then the top of the ninth, as Chapman's coming in, he's wild all over the place. And credit to him because he straightened it out. And in the long run, I do ultimately think Chapman will be the closer in the playoffs for the Yankees. And I'm not sure how to feel about that. I don't love it. But he pitched well tonight. I can't complain about that. And then we know Aaron Judge is leading off the bottom of the ninth, down four runs. But I look around and fans are leaving. After the Yankees went down to the bottom of the eighth, fans were leaving. And to me, I didn't understand this. You knew that Aaron Judge was guaranteed another at-bat in this ballgame. And to me, like I said, I didn't care if the Yankees won or the Yankees lost this game. I was there to see history. History on the line. That's why I showed up. That's why I'm driving seven hours round trip to see history. As I'm sitting there, I see the fans leaving. And I was just kind of taken aback. Maybe fan, were you not aware? Because even if they lose the game, if they had lost the game 8-5, Judge still hit 60 and I would have seen it. So the fans leaving at that point really made zero sense to me. But a lot of fans left. There were not a lot of people there. It was 40-plus thousand fans on a Tuesday night against the Pittsburgh Pirates, which is absurd, with the division all but locked up, that there was that many people there. And they were all on their feet, every single Aaron Judge at bat, especially the fourth plate appearance and the third at bat when he struck out with the bases loaded. But he gets the fifth opportunity, the fourth at bat, fifth plate appearance. And the fans that are left, probably about 28,000, maybe 30,000, but definitely not 40,000, are all standing and all on their feet. And as it goes, one ball, one strike, ball two, ball three. And on a 3-1 pitch... History happened. Aaron Judge drills it. It was a no-doubter. It was in the left field. Sisu was deep. And I lost my mind. I was shaking 
I couldn't believe what I was witnessing. I have it on video, but I still couldn't believe it. I still couldn't fathom that I was actually there watching it. It just, it didn't make sense to me. It was abnormal. And I'm shaking. I'm going nuts. The whole place is going nuts. They're trying to get him a curtain call. And Aaron Judge barely gives a curtain call because now the Yankees are still down three runs in the bottom of the ninth inning. This game is essentially over. And so whereas normally there would have been a ton of hype for that, there was barely any hype at all relatively because the Yankees were still down three runs at this point. And it's like, okay, they're losing. That's it. The game's over, but it doesn't matter because, like Sweeney Murdy said, had you just seen one of these two amazing things that happened tonight, you would have gone home happy. You would have been like, that was one of the craziest games of the year. But the second thing that happened was almost as crazy as the first thing that happened. Aaron Judge hit 60, and by the way, the graphic up on the board of him next to Babe Ruth just looked fake. You don't see graphics of people tying Babe Ruth. Nobody ties Babe Ruth at anything. Babe Ruth is the greatest Yankee of all time, maybe the greatest baseball player of all time. And he tied him, something that Babe Ruth did 95 years ago. And the black and white picture of Babe Ruth next to Aaron Judge on the scoreboard just looks fake. And he ties him. And you even hear it in Michael Kay's call, because in his first call, he's not as... I mean, he's enthusiastic about the home run, but it's not like the record-breaking home run. It was tying Babe Ruth. And the Yankees are still down three runs. But then in the second call, he all of a sudden mentions Judge again. And why? Because the second call's what changes the game. Anthony Rizzo doubles. Glaber Torres walks. And then Josh Donaldson bloops a single in to set the stage for Giancarlo Stanton, who had an awful night. Outside of a walk, I think he had struck out three times. And the last strikeout was he just couldn't even get close on some of those pitches. He's late on the fastball. He's waving at the slider down and away. Just an awful, awful night for Giancarlo Stanton. He was nine for his last 83 before that at-bat, including 34 strikeouts. That's a 110 batting average in that span, and it dates back to July 23rd before he was the home run derby or the, sorry, the all-star game MVP. So going back to that date, and obviously he's been hurt a lot of that time, but he has been awful in that time, only nine hits or only eight hits in that span. And he comes up to the plate after this last at-bat. He was booed off the field when he struck out in his previous at-bat. He puts his head down and he was angry. And he comes back to the plate and he gets into a good count. It's a 2-2 pitch. And you knew the slider was coming. You just hope that he hung it. And Stanton, I mean, he hit the ball the way only Giancarlo Stanton can hit a ball, which is a line drive that never gets more than 20 feet off the ground and flies out like a bullet. If you blink, you miss it. And it, it go, I was still shaking from the Aaron Judge home run. The, the rally happened so quickly that it's all of a sudden it's bases loaded. We can actually win this game. I tweeted on Twitter. I wrote... Giancarlo Stanton walk-off grand slam and I, I was just thinking because I was still shaking from the judge home run I was still reacting to that and then Stanton hits that and like that it's out in a second it's out in a blink and all of a sudden you're like what the hell just happened and all of a sudden the judge home run becomes even more special and that's why Kay mentioned it again and the, I mean just the complete and utter shock and awe of that situation of everything that happened from Stanton to judge to the entire game. You forget about Harrison Bader and Nestor Cortez, who had a gutsy performance, didn't have his best stuff, but had a gutsy performance and stuck it out for this game. Showed you why he's really the best pitcher on the staff this year. I mean, everything that happened in this ball game is just unbelievable. And that's why I said I had to go back and watch what happened because I, I was just in awe. I was in sh I just shook from what happened. And what kind of sucks is that the on-the-game interview after the game was with Giancarlo because he's the one who had to walk off Grand Slam and not judge. But he made the judge moment all the more special, and judge is an individual moment. He's going to tell you that, hey, Stanton said the same thing after the game. Hey, he brought us back in the game. He injected the stadium with the energy that allowed the comeback to happen because after the judge moment, it felt like, wait, they could actually do this. They could actually win this game. And I, the fact that they won, they win 9-8, everything that happened, that's as crazy as a Yankee game as I've been to. The only game I could even remotely compare it to is when Judge hit a homer that went foul and then hit it fair 
at a game in late August or early September as well against the Tampa Bay Rays in 2019 when they were battling for the division. And that was a crazy game, another Aaron Judge game. And then Didi hit a grand slam a couple of at-bats later. That was the game that CeCe Sabathia was jawing with Garcia. It was one of the crazy Yankee games. But this was that times a million. The only, a sh- the only part that's a shame of it is that it happened in front of a stadium that was maybe only three-quarters full when there was a sellout earlier in the game. Kind of a shame, that part of it. But everything else, I mean, how could you complain? How could you, how could you be upset? That was as good a moment, as good a game as I've ever experienced in my life. And I don't know. I've had some luck with these sporting events of late. And this is just another one of them. Add them to the list. And these moments are so special. These are things you don't forget. They're worth, what was the MasterCard commercial? Priceless. <laughs> That's what they are. They're priceless. You can't put a price tag on those moments in these games and on these events. And being there with my producer, Dave, that was a nutty, nutty experience. Just absolute utter shock, utter insanity. And the whole Yankee Stadium, ball, the ballpark and leaving the ballpark afterwards with everyone chanting. I mean, no one knew what to chant. Are they chanting Giancarlo Stanton's name? Are they chanting Aaron Judge's name? Are they chanting MVP? Are they chanting... No one knew what even to chant at that point because everyone was just going crazy in the moment. And, I mean, I I think I've said enough. I, I don't even know what else to say. And the craziest part is I had vowed off going to Yankee Stadium the rest of the year because I went earlier in the year and it was such a blah experience. I said, I'm not going back to the playoffs. And... At this rate, I wasn't even sure if I was going to go to the playoffs with how poorly the Yankees have been playing lately. But one man changed that, and that's Aaron Judge. And he changed the energy in that ballpark single-handedly. And he did it with every at-bat, and then when he ultimately hit the home run, if you don't believe in momentum, I mean, I believe in it because the second he hit that home run, everything changed. And a few minutes later, the grand slam by Stanton wins it. So, I mean, just crazy and, uh, well... Here's the rest of the podcast I recorded talking about football and all that stuff earlier today. So wild, wild stuff. Check out all the videos I took. I post them all over my social media. So check it out there. Uh, and just speechless and another utter just awe of what Aaron Judge has been doing. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. I often talk on this podcast about breaking the stigma surrounding mental health. So if you're feeling stressed, depressed, or just want to talk, today's sponsor, BetterHelp, is here to help you. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed, experienced therapist online, and you have access to over 20,000 different therapists that you may not have access to in your area. All you have to do is fill out a questionnaire, and 48 hours later, you're set up with a therapist that fits your needs. You can then schedule video or phone calls and have access to unlimited messages back and forth with your experienced therapist. You can also change to a new therapist at any time with no extra charge. I often talk on this podcast about how perspective is anything, and that's something I learned in therapy. I had terrible anxiety, and I learned about how changing your perspective can change the reality. So take charge of your mental health and join the over 2 million people who already use BetterHelp for therapy online today. And if you use my code, you can get an extra 10% off on your first month. So go to betterhelp.com Rami for 10% off. That's B-E-T-T-E-R help h-e-l-p dot com slash rami for 10% off your first month do it today episode 96 of the rami la vie podcast welcome back and if something historic happens you already heard about it in the open um if something didn't happen i don't know what you might have heard but this is the beginning of the podcast i guess so welcome back uh it's presented by BetterHelp, as always, get 10% off your first month of online therapy by using my first name, Rami, R-A-M-I, at checkout at betterhelp.com. And I want to start with what happened tonight or what might happen tonight, because right now it is Tuesday afternoon uh, on September 20th, and I am headed to Yankee Stadium in a bit, hoping to see what might end up being history um, or not. I feel like either way, it's going to be a special night. And of course, what I'm talking about is Aaron Judge. And and I've talked about it throughout the season. I've talked about it on the podcast. I've talked about it on Twitter. I've talked about it everywhere. But it's now finally starting to get the national recognition that it deserves, that Aaron Judge might actually be doing something that's really special. And he might do it tonight. He might do it at home at Yankee Stadium. And I think the national media, who's generally not a baseball media, we've seen that a lot recently, is starting to actually 
realize that this is something more special, something that we haven't seen, especially when you consider the iconic franchise that is the New York Yankees, when you consider the iconic name that is Babe Ruth, uh, tying him in home runs in a single season, 60 home runs in a single season, even Giancarlo Stanton when he went nuts that year in Miami, he didn't do that. We haven't seen 60 home runs since the steroid era, and before that, it was a, it was a guy in the 60s named Roger Maris. So you're going back that many years to a guy who did it clean the last time and it's assumed with the amount that they test and everything going on you assume that Aaron Judge is playing clean this year not only that but he's doing it in a year which he bet on himself it's a contract year and he said I'm going to risk it all and willing to take this chance because I think I'm that good and he's going to set a Yankee record now this is a guy who obviously needs to stay in the Yankee uniform forever and that's a conversation for another time I don't think that should be the main point of the conversation today but Going on Twitter this morning and seeing that it's taking up a storm, seeing that the Sports Center accounts are posting it, seeing that Roger Maris's family, his kids are going to be in attendance, seeing that there's going to be different people there. Everyone's heading out to the stadium. And I said, of course I'm going to be there. I'm a big show Bob. I'm one of those guys. I'm an event whore. I, I admit it. I've said it all the time on this podcast. I love going to events. It's kind of what led me into going to the U.S. Open last week and how that worked out for you, boy. It worked out pretty good, I'd say. So, yeah, I, I'm going to be there tonight. Uh, going to drive up to New York in a little bit after I'm done recording this. We're going to talk about football first, and we'll get into everything else later. So there's going to be buzz. So no matter what happens tonight, whether he hits it, and you already know by now if he hits 60, if he hits 61, maybe he had a three-home run game and got to 62. I doubt that'll happen, but we'll see. You already know by now if it did happen. Prediction for tonight, I don't know. Maybe he'll hit 60. He's been on a tear. When he goes on a tear like this, usually he hits them in bunches. Maybe the day off yesterday actually hurts him more than it helps him because it gets him out of his rhythm. I'm not sure. I don't even know who's pitching for Pittsburgh tonight. And that's another thing. It's one of the rare times I'm going to a Yankee game. I really don't care about the outcome of the game. I don't, I'm not there to see anyone else. I'm not there to see Harrison Bader starting in center field for the Yankees. I think Nestor Cortez might even be pitching for the Yankees. Not there to see him. I'm there to see one guy and one guy only. I'm there to see Aaron Judge. And I'm there to see him do something very specific. And that is hit a home run. And I talked about this a little bit on last pod when I was looking at tickets. The tickets in the outfield seats in the front few rows of the outfield were more expensive than the tickets where I'm sitting in section 115 behind the Yankee dugout, right behind the legend seats. So it's pretty crazy. Like I said, People are really hyped for this. It's going to be an incredible atmosphere. And I feel like every time he comes to play, I'm going to have my phone out videoing. I think everyone there is going to have their phone out, phones out videoing because it's going to be one of the crazier events in New York City in sports that we've seen in a really long time. And I hope I get to witness something crazy. If I don't, like I said, I still think the atmosphere and the buzz in the building is going to be something that from the pregame, you're going to be feeling it. I think there's going to be a lot of more, a lot more media there, a lot more celebrities there, just a lot of stuff. This whole week at Yankee Stadium is going to be a really fun week. I have work here in Maryland, but I was able to make it tonight. So I ha- feel like I have to go because if I don't go, I'm going to regret it. I don't want to regret it. I kind of regret not going to game seven of the Rangers against the, uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins. And that still to this day, I'm like, you know what, if there's a game and I can make it and it's realistic and it's not going to cost me an arm or leg, which this game really didn't because I was ahead of the curve. I bought the ticket right the second he hit 59. I was like, I'm buying a ticket for Tuesday. Um, and so I was a little bit ahead of it. And so I, I think like I have to make my best effort to go to this game. And so that's what I'm doing tonight. It should be really fun to the NFL because that's what this podcast is about. It's a football podcast now. Remember Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, it's all about football. And Wednesdays, what we do on this podcast, we rank the teams like I do every week. I'm going to give you a little power rankings, rank them by, uh, I guess, tiers like we talked about in last episode. I'm not going to update the surprise playoff teams. Um, There's a little bit of an update, actually. I'm going to give you I'm going to give you an update on the surprise playoff teams. I think the Giants are still very much in it, but there's a new team that's in it, an old team that's still hanging on by a threat after their performance this Sunday against my Jets. But um, we're going to talk about Monday football, Monday night football. We're going to start with the Monday night games, and there were two of them. And the first thing is there were two games, and somebody uh, called into Carton Roberts and explained this, and I was like upset at myself that I didn't pick up on this. As a former um, media salesperson, someone who sold games, I should have picked up on this it makes a lot of sense you think why would ESPN compete against itself and put two games on at the same time right that doesn't really make so much sense to a lot of people I was like I don't get it most people don't have two TVs I was sitting here struggling I was watching one game on my laptop one game on the TV luckily the first game was a blowout and I was able to put it on my laptop 
by the time the second game started. So that worked out for me. And plus, I wanted to hear Joe Buck and Troy Aikman on my TV. So I had the volume potted up on the TV and it was down on the laptop. So that's just my personal preference. But a lot of people may not have even had that set up. And we're just kind of relying on checking their phone or even watching the game on their phone to see the scores of the other game. So why did ESPN do this? Why are they kind of pitting it against each other? So what ESPN ultimately is going to do is they're going to combine the two numbers and say, this is how well Monday Night Football did. Kind of like they did with the Peyton and Eli broadcast last week versus Joe Buck and Troy Aikman broadcast last week. I told you about that. We talked about that on Wednesday's pod last week. But there's something different that they're doing here, which is also true. They're now selling these games as two individual units. And because they are able to sell, instead of having, I don't know, 10 Monday Night Football games throughout the season, or I guess it would be 18 Monday Night Football games throughout the season, they're now going to have... Uh, an additional 10 is what I meant to say Monday night football games throughout the season by doing a double header so when you're selling these commercials you're able to sell extra commercials so having three broadcasts of Monday night football where you have the Manning cast you have the early game and the late game it's a selling point for ESPN they're maximizing their rights to Monday night football so it actually makes sense even though they overlap now to start a game at 10 p.m you can't sell that time slot as well as you can sell the 8 p.m. time slot on the East Coast. So it doesn't make sense for them to have a game start at 7 and a game at 8 because the game at 7 can't sell as well on the West Coast. So basically, you're using the time slots pretty well. You stagger it by an hour and a half. And I thought it worked out pretty well because there was a blowout last night in the first game. The second game was technically a blowout, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. So I think it actually worked out really well for ESPN where you start a game at 7.15. If you're on the East Coast, you're already watching it at 7.15. That's good because 8.15 was started or 8.30 was starting to feel a little bit late. An hour and a half later, the next game starts. If you're on the West Coast, you're getting home from work or whatever at 5.30. You could start watching that game or at least pick up the end of the first half or the second half of the first game and then pick up the second game where it's holding uh, at that point. So I don't think it was a terrible strategy by ESPN. What I'd like to see going forward, if ESPN did make one adjustment, is if you're going to have Aikman and Buck on the late game, maybe you put the Manning cast on the earlier game and then have them switch and do the second half of the second game. That way, if the second game's a blowout, you keep yourself covered because they could just switch. They're sitting in a studio anyway. They could just do the second half of the second game. And the first game, um, they could be on for the first game because that's the lesser ESPN broadcast. So it's more likely that you're going to get more views on the Manning cast when the alternative is a lesser broadcast as opposed to if they're going up against Troy and Buck, like we saw last week, Troy and Buck dominated the Manning cast. That's just my, if I was running ESPN, if I was the media company uh, and an entity, then that's what I would do. But what do I know? I did see uh, something before the game, which was like, the Bills are back in town. There was like this little cute, cute song, very like out of town vibe, very like, um, I don't know, like a weird Pittsburgh, New York, like uh, or upstate New York, kind of like weird out of town, love their sports, but kind of very small town vibe music video that some Buffalo Bills fans put out before the game. And then the game starts and you turn on the TV and it's ah, the ruckus crowd. It's crazy. They are some of the weirdest fans in the world combined with some of the best fans in sports. And when that sports city is going like it is last night, it is crazy. And when this Bills team is as good as they've been and they were really really good it's going to be insane all year long those bills fans are nuts so that was my first takeaway from that game bills fans weird as hell but they're awesome the second takeaway is stefan diggs i don't know how you could say enough about this guy he had 148 yards receiving on 12 catches and three touchdowns he was open on every play but not only that there were some plays where i saw he's kind of like drawing the defense he starts at the line of scrimmage just kind of like jogging out of the out of his break and then all of a sudden dashes to one direction and then three guys went with him, and you have a guy just running an under underneath him, and the ball comes to him immediately in time. He is everything on their offense right now. Josh Allen is running everything off of what Stephon Diggs is doing because the defense is so hyper-focused on Stephon Diggs, and yet still, despite them being hyper-focused on Stephon Diggs, despite him opening up everything for everyone else, he's still dominating everyone by just making plays himself, which is insane. Stephon Diggs, what he did last night, that's obviously the number one takeaway from that game. Josh Allen, the defense, all those guys were great. But Stephon Diggs, that was as good of a performance I've seen from a wide receiver in a very long time. Also, what happened in this game is the Bills punted for the first time in the 2022 season. It was like on the fifth or sixth possession of the game. I think it took till the second half. They hadn't punted a single time all year because they didn't punt in the season opener. They finally punt on this possession. And what happens? The other team muffs the punt, the Titans muff the punt, and the Jet and the Bills recover. So that was just classic Bills. Even the one time that they actually do have to kick it away, they actually do have to punt. They still recover the own, their own punt. So that was kind of crazy also for the Bills. The Bills are as dominant as everyone predicted them to be. The Bills are 
the team that to beat in the NFL right now, it seems, definitely in the AFC, it seems. And so when everyone talks preseason about the Bills and all the hype and people are like, oh, slow the hype train on the Bills, they've come back now back-to-back weeks, maybe not against the best opponents, although they did do it against the defending Super Bowl champions who are still trying to find their footing early in the season. And they did it now against Tennessee, who was the num- reigning number one seed in the AFC last year, although I don't think they're that good. Um, and we'll get to that a little bit later, but... The Bills are coming out and they're trying to prove a point and they are going to start the season rattling off some wins. And if you think about it, they're in a really tough AFC East now. If you saw what Belichick is still Belichick and they won a game against Pittsburgh, never easy to do, even though Mac Jones, Mitch Trubisky maybe wasn't a world-class matchup, but Belichick's still Belichick. Tyreek and Waddle and 2-1 McDaniel, what they were able to do in Miami is insane. The Jets had a big win. Their roster looks really solid. It really does. And now the Bills, that AFC East is stacked. It is loaded. But the narratives are still going to be coming out. Everyone's going to be talking about the 19-0 Bills. That's going to be the narrative. I think they're going to rattle off enough wins in a row where they could be 4-0, 5-0, 6-0. All of a sudden, people are going to start talking about, is this going to be the perfect season? That's going to be a narrative that's going to play out through the entire season. We'll see if they can play with that pressure. You saw after the game... Stefan Diggs was being interviewed and he's like, Josh Allen, Josh Allen, Josh Allen, giving all the credit to his quarterback. And then Josh Allen, they turned the camera to him. He goes, Bill's W like, it's all about team win. Like that's all we care about. So they do have the personality that maybe they can sustain that pressure. But I do think that is going to become a narrative this year is the 19 and 0 narrative. And it really starts week by week. It's going to increase with how dominant they've been. It's not just that they're winning. It's how dominant they've been winning. Also, speaking of how dominant they've been and the fan base and everything that comes with that, there's a tweet that's going viral now, which is, I don't think the world is capable of handling a Bills versus Philadelphia Eagles Super Bowl. And I think what he's referring to is the two fan bases. And that is an awesome tweet because the Eagle fans last night were not any less crazy than the Bill fans were last night. Seeing those two stadiums, seeing those two fan bases seeing those two crowds back to back was insane and the first half was flawless from the eagles if you talk about that game they were absolutely flawless jalen hurts was flawless in the first half made every pass right on time right on target they have their three running backs that work together their wide receiving core with aj brown with Devonte smith with dallas goddard at the tight end them working together is awesome and hurts running for the touchdowns And they showed the stat, 333 passing yards and two rushing touchdowns was the same exact stat as Michael Vick had. I think it was like 10 years ago today, something like that. They looked perfect. Now, in that game, I think it was actually closer than the final score because in the second half, they really kept Minnesota in it. Minnesota didn't look that bad, but Kirk Cousins was awful. And when I picked Minnesota to win this game, I totally underestimated the power that is Monday night. Kirk Cousins and not only Monday night Kirk Cousins but primetime Kirk Cousins is just that bad he proves it every time I think now he's 2 and 10 on Monday nights it's insanity how bad he is on Monday nights just a terrible performance he threw three interceptions two to Darius Slay Darius Slay could have had another five or six interceptions in that game he could have had seven total interceptions in that game he actually it was funny because he dropped the the easy one to make and then made an incredible play on the second interception that he had so Kirk Cousins they could actually be a really good team the Minnesota Vikings, if Kirk Cousins, and even when he wasn't throwing picks, I was watching it with my father, and every time he threw it into these tight windows at the end of the game, I was like, how is that not picked? They were right there, almost intercepted, and somehow it got through to the hands of the receiver. Like He was really testing the limits last night, and ultimately they lose. And it was so funny because when they got the blocked punt, the linebacker or whoever it was, was trying to run to score, and the fact that he didn't score, he gets tackled from behind. It was like, oh my God, now they're going to turn over and they did. And then they got an interception and it was the same thing. The linebacker is running it back and it's like, or maybe it was a fumble, whatever it was. And he's trying to score so hard because he knows that if I don't score, Kirk Cousins is going to turn it over in the red zone. And he did again. He threw two interceptions after turnovers in the red zone. I mean, that is as bad as it gets. I think Hertz is really good. I think the Eagles, we talked about them in preseason. The Eagles are a really good roster. Can Hertz be the guy? Can Hertz be their quarterback that takes them over the top? I think so. We saw it last week, though, against the Lions. They kind of let up a little bit in the second half. It seems like they kind of let up a little bit in the second half last night as well against the Minnesota Vikings, and the Vikings didn't take advantage. The Vikings kept it close enough that if Kirk Cousins wasn't so horrible last night, then they actually could have taken advantage of that and maybe could have won that game. Ultimately, that doesn't happen. The Eagles do win, and that's the story. And it looks like a blowout, but I don't think it was as much of a blowout as you might think it is.
since we're talking about this game, I just want to mention Monday night football. Two games was made for fantasy football. I know I don't talk about my fantasy team, but I had Stephon Diggs going in all three of my leagues. And I had was going against one guy who had Devonta Smith and Miles Sanders. And I really thought my father, the game was essentially over. Me and my father sitting here at the edge of our seat because Miles Sanders might be running it again and again to try and pick up the first down and essentially end the game for the Eagles. But in doing so, he also could have beaten me in fantasy. I needed that huge game from Stephon Diggs. I was down 10 points going into Monday night. He had two guys. I had one guy. He got 20 points from his two guys combined, over 20 points, but they kept handing it Miles Sanders, three yards, five yards, seven yards, five yards, 10 yards. And I'm like, oh my God, this is really going to happen. I'm going to lose this game. I'm sitting here. I'm up by six points watching this and my father's dying laughing. And then Minnesota calls a timeout and Boston Scott came into the game. My hero, Boston Scott, couldn't pick up a first down on three consecutive handoffs. And that was it. The Eagles never saw the field again because Minnesota drove down the other way and then ultimately didn't even score. So uh, that worked out for me and my fantasy team. It was definitely uh, one of the crazier rushes I've had from fantasy football recently. So I thought I'd talk about it. Why not? So we talked about Stefan Diggs and we talked about A.J. Brown. And I saw an interesting tweet also today, which was that third-year quarterbacks, when they get their receiver or second-year young quarterbacks, when all of a sudden they get that receiver the stats are insane how much of a jump they take. Josh Allen was a 50-something percent completion percentage guy, and then he gets Stephon Diggs. He jumps to 60-something percent, jumps by 10 points in percentages. His numbers take a huge leap, and that huge leap that we talked about with Josh Allen, yes, Brian Dable, yes, it was the, the whole coaching staff, yes, it was Josh Allen developing into the player that he ultimately became the great player that he is in the league today. But don't underestimate how much it means to have a wide receiver like Stephon Diggs on your team and how much he contributed to Josh Allen taking that jump. The same thing goes for A.J. Brown. Yes, he's not getting the most targets or all the passes in that game, but he's taking the defense's mind towards him, and now they have to worry about a bunch of different things, and Smith comes open, the tight ends come open, and it's making things easier for Jalen Hurts, and the step he's taking is huge. And the reason I bring this up is because what Garrett Wilson did for the Jets in the first two weeks of the season, and credit the coaching staff, Week one, they didn't play him a lot, but week two, they're like, oh my God, this guy is special. If he can actually be that guy, maybe he could be that guy for Zach Wilson, and Zach Wilson can take that jump. Zach Wilson can be the guy who takes that second-year jump because he has a dynamic receiver, and it's not like the receivers next to him are all that bad. If you talk about CJ Uzama at the tight end spot, you talk about Berrios and Davis and obviously Elijah Moore, even the guys out of the backfield in Carter and Hall, those are good talent receivers. We talked about this all the time. Those are good skill position players, and if... Garrett Wilson is really this guy who's this dynamic and this incredible. And I saw some incredible stats about him through his first two games of this of his career. He's setting numbers that even guys like Justin Jefferson didn't do in the first two games of his career. If this could really be how good Garrett Wilson is, and I saw it was, I think it was Jefferson and Jamar Chase didn't even come close to the numbers that Wilson put up in the first two games of his career. That could be something really special for the Jets. And that could open up everything for them offensively. And it could also open up the potential that Zach Wilson has as a young quarterback. Now, for now, Zach Wilson is out, so it's benefiting Joe Flacco. And Joe Flacco, through the first two weeks of the NFL season, is third in the league in passing yards, and he's also the third-ranked best quarterback, according to Pro Football Focus. And this is going to be an issue that we talked about. The narrative is already starting. Joe Flacco is likely going to start week three against Minis- against the Bengals. And if the Jets can figure out a way to make the Bengals 0-3 and they improve to 2-1, and and they're going to tell me the Steelers are coming to town or you're going to Pittsburgh and you're ready to bring back Zach Wilson. Do you really want to do that at that point? That's going to be the narrative. And the answer is yes. Zach Wilson is your franchise quarterback. Zach Wilson is the future of this franchise. But I already know the narrative's coming because it's New York, because the Jets. It would almost be super jet for them to win against Cincinnati, even though I don't think they could really win that game. I don't think they will win that game. But it would be super jets for them to win that game just so that the Joe Flacco narrative continues. That's how Jets the Jets are. Another couple of takeaways from that game against the Browns, though, because I'm still going to celebrate that. It's only Tuesday. It happened two days ago. I'm still going to celebrate the Browns when nothing bad happened yet since then. So let's talk about it. Since 2001, only three teams have won a game after trailing by 10 or more with less than three minutes to go in the game. All three teams did that against the Browns. When I said the Browns outbrown the Jets jetting, that's what I meant. The Browns did more Brown-like things than the Jets could do Jet-like things. Everyone was talking about another thing that I didn't talk about on the podcast, but a lot of people were talking about was why Nick Chubb scored. Why did Nick Chubb score that third touchdown? And it's instinct for a running back to score. And at that point in the moment, I wasn't even thinking that. At that point in the moment, I'm thinking, now we're down 13, game over. Great. 
there was an audio clip that came out from the audio of the sideline of the Jets. One of the offensive coaches came over to, I think it was Joe Flacco, and was like, they just gave us a chance. He scored. They gave us a chance. Their mindset in that moment was, we can still win this thing. And that's a positive mindset for the Jets. That's something that we haven't heard of. That's something that we talked about with the Giants last week with Brian Dable. They gave us a chance because they scored. We went down 13. Instead of hanging our heads, we're like, oh, no, now we have a chance to win this thing. That's incredible that the Jets had that mindset and had the capability to do that. But why did Nick Chubb try to score? And the other thing is, Robert Sala said after the game, I've never been so happy to see a missed tackle because the Jets did miss a tackle on that play, which begs the question, and we talked about this, it was a terrible performance from the coaching staff, specifically Robert Sala. If you were so happy that he missed the tackle, why were you trying to tackle him? Why didn't the Jets just let him walk into the end zone? Where was the awareness on that play to let him just walk into the end zone because you knew that was the only way you could get the ball back? I don't understand that at all. If you're happy on the sideline in the moment that he wasn't tackled and they walked into the end zone, then you should have known that the defensive players should have been told not to tackle Nick Chubb. I think that's the bigger issue than Nick Chubb not going down in that spot. But like I said, where there's bad coaching, there's also good coaching. The coaching staff and their credit to them is realizing how good Garrett Wilson was and making him a focal point of this offense on every single possession. Like I said, he didn't really play so much in the first half of week one. I guess they didn't realize what they had. I don't know how that happens in practice. He didn't shine through. The reports coming out of camp all along were that he's not as ready as they thought he might be. And then he explodes onto the scene. So sometimes you don't know. I get it. Sometimes you don't know. But he is clearly that guy through the first two weeks of the season. They need to continue leaning on him. And credit to the coaching staff to making him the focal point of the offense in the second half. He won them that game. And really credit Mike LaFleur, who's proven to be an incredible head coach. And Connor Hughes, who's the Jets beat reporter for SNY, put out uh, a little bit of a video where he was showing the plays that they ran and the plays that they ran throughout the game to set up the touchdown to Corey Davis, which people don't talk about how Corey Davis got wide open along the sideline and to set up the ultimate game winning touchdown down the middle of the field, the strike from Joe Flacco to Garrett Wilson, the play calling by Mike LaFleur in that spot and his awareness the entire time during this game was incredible. And so he was setting up the Browns with different plays for the plays that he was going to do next. Great job by like, like by LaFleur putting a game plan together. Great job by Joe Flacco executing it as well. And if I'm looking at this right now, LaFleur is the guy that we can't lose. Like we need to make sure maybe he should be the head coach. And I know it's a little bit crazy because he has to sit in the box. He's not, he's only getting like his real sea legs under him the second half of last season with the play calling. And now this year, but his awareness has proven to be incredible. And if you lose him, if somebody else sees, oh my God, this guy has the awareness, this guy's really good and decides to make him a head coach, I would be really frustrated that the Jets didn't find a way to hold on to him. Maybe you make him like co-head coach. Maybe you could help out Salah. Maybe you could work with the timeouts. I don't know. But I feel like he should be in Salah's ear helping him out because his awareness and his game planning and his looking at the game from a long overview. Like you have to look at like a like a painting maybe or like a song that it has a beginning and a middle and end and each thing is connecting and setting up the next thing. It's like art. And LaFleur looks at it that way. And it seems like Salah's still living in the moment and it's all hectic play to play. I think Salah needs to learn a little bit from LaFleur how to take a step back and paint that picture of an entire game, a full game of football, start to finish. LaFleur has done an excellent job of that uh, through the first two games of the season, especially on those last two drives against the Browns. Now, another uh, nugget from the game that came out was Ashton Davis. Ashton Davis was on the play on the field for one snap. He's a special team specialist at this point in his career, but he's on the field for one snap in the game on Sunday, and that was the snap that he got the interception on the game-winning pick on that last drive where I told you they were only a few yards away from setting up a field goal the Browns were, and Ashton Davis gets the pick. Also, Brandon Mann, credit him. He had two of the craziest plays in the game. He was the one. He was the kicker, even though he's a punter. Remember, we were talking about firing him after last week instead and cutting him and trying to replace kickers. The Jets had four kickers at practice. And thankfully, they didn't use any of the other punters because he saved his job and he might have saved his career because he gets the punt, which is the kick, the onside kick that ultimately the Jets get back. And he also remember the fake punt earlier in the game. He was the one who got the fake punt and threw it for a first down. That was a huge first down at that point in the game for the Jets. I also want to wrap a bow on Sunday Night Football because an interesting story came out about Justin Fields. And before I talk about the story that came out, I've talked about this before. Clearly, the Browns don't want him to be the starting quarterback. He's not the guy that they brought in. It's a new regime. They don't like him. They let him throw the ball 11 times. I think he was 8 for 11 with an interception and like 90 yards, something like that. 
That's not good enough. That's You're not looking to see if this is the guy. And we talked about this all the time where you need to find out early now in the NFL if he's the guy. And the, Brown, the Bears are not doing what they need to be doing to figure out if Justin Fields is the guy because they don't care. It's not their guy. They could always say, oh, that was the last guy who drafted that quarterback. It's his fault. Blame him. Bring in their own guy. And that buys them a few more years. They almost rather not find out if Justin Fields is the guy or not, even when he flashes signs. And then his comments after the game were just ridiculous. His comments after the game where, I promise you, we care more about winning and losing than the fans do. That's going to run him out of town immediately, especially in a sports town like Chicago. And don't tell me. The players, they care a lot. I get it. They go out there. They put in all the work. But he said the fans don't put in all the work. The fans don't make the money you make. They put in their hard-earned cash to pay to watch you play. They buy your jerseys, all that stuff we know about already. And the fans are going to be there long before you're there, and they'll be there long after you're gone. That's always the thing with the fans. We're there forever. We're there for the long haul. You're just a fart passing in the wind in comparison to these fans, these fan bases, especially like a fan base in Chicago that's such a hardcore fan base that has struggled now for the last bunch of years that have suffered through how bad the Bears have been being in the division with the Packers and Aaron Rodgers and all that stuff. And you want to know how much fans care? My producer, Dave, sent me a, uh, a video, who I beat in fantasy, by the way, this week. Producer Dave, loser. He was one of the teams that I beat in my three fantasy leagues. Um, but he sent me a video of a Browns fan in his car after the game doing his live reaction. And I don't know if this is fake or this is real, but it seems genuine because he cares so much. He's like, what are we doing? How could we lose this game? You're going to tell me that you, Justin Fields, care more than people who their whole lives are rooting he's like god hates the browns god doesn't care about the browns I, I mean if you believe in god he doesn't care about football um but that's neither here or there anyway um but my point is that those are fans and if you don't see that if you don't see that as an nfl player that you think you're better than the fans because you go out there and you have to try and you get paid millions of dollars to try really hard i don't know you're lost and that's a guy who might get run run out of town speaking of a guy who might get run out of town Frank Reich might get run out of town in Indianapolis. Frank Reich has never won a game in Jacksonville. That's five consecutive losses in Jacksonville in his five years as the head coach. And in that time, the Jags had a season where they won only one game. They went one in 15, and their only win was at home against Indianapolis. Jacksonville has won 16 total games in that span over the last four plus years. It's a little bit of this year. And of those 16 games, five of those wins came at home against Indianapolis. Frank Reich is losing his roster, and it's getting really bad. And they are one of the worst teams, in my opinion, in football. And you think about it, Andrew Luck screwed them. There's no doubt. Yes, Andrew Luck retiring on them two minutes before the season started at the last minute. It definitely hurts Indianapolis and everything they did because they thought they were a Super Bowl contender. And then, boom, Andrew Luck retires. But they haven't recovered. They went from Jacoby Brissett to Phillip Rivers, to Carson Wentz, to Matt Ryan. They always felt like a patchwork quarterback was going to make up for Andrew Luck because their roster was right there. But they're wrong. Their roster has not been right there. And there are parts of this team that are now everywhere. Everyone on this team needs to improve. And just using this patchwork quarterback is ultimately what's going to get him fired. Maybe that's what kept him his job this long as Andrew Luck left us. Brissett, Rivers stunk. Wentz stunk. All these things that we talked about with Frank Reich, not good enough. I'm sorry. And if you look at that division right now, the Jags can really win that division. Houston is awful. Tennessee, awful. Indianapolis is now awful as well. And the Jacksonville Jaguars, if Trevor Lawrence is half the quarterback people said he was going to be last year, they have built an infrastructure. They have a pretty good team there. And oh, they have a Super Bowl winning quarterback uh, head coach in Doug Peterson. They could actually win that division, the Jacksonville Jaguars. And I told you I was going to talk about this a little bit later. The Jacksonville Jaguars are my new pick for the sleeper playoff team. And they don't even have to be that good. They could go nine and eight and win this division and make the playoffs. So I talked about the Giants, the Browns. I'm a little bit nervous. I'm backing off. I'm not saying that they're for sure not going to make the playoffs now. But after their performance, we saw I'm backing off a little bit. The Giants and now the Jacksonville Jaguars, those are my teams for the sleeper playoff teams. I also want to wrap something on the Miami-Baltimore game. And speaking of the Giants and speaking of them being a potential playoff team, this is something interesting that came out. Tiki Barber, who works for WFAN, works for us uh, in New York for Odyssey, he had an interesting report. He thought that Lamar Jackson to the Giants actually makes a lot of sense and he thinks that actually could happen now I don't think the Ravens are going to trade Lamar Jackson and they have the ability to franchise tag him so I'm not sure how that would happen if Lamar Jackson would hold out I don't think that would happen either Lamar Jackson actually has an incredible demeanor and when people look at him they're like oh he tweets a lot 
Lamar Jackson has a superstar personality, but he has such an accountability. And I went back and listened to his postgame after this loss, and he took the blame for everything. When none of it was his fault. He's like, we need to work on this as a team. His demeanor and the way he handles the media in Baltimore can translate to how he could handle the media in New York. I think he would be a superstar in New York. And if you think about what Dable did with Josh Allen, if he could do that with a talent and a guy as dynamic an athlete as Lamar Jackson, that would be insane. Maybe they keep Saquon Barkley for a year, something. Maybe they figure something out. But Lamar Jackson to New York, if that actually happens, that would be crazy. And everyone's talking about Tua Tungavailoa. Now, I told you Tua Tungavailoa is not that bad. I told you that we were on him in... Alabama, we loved him. It was tank for Tua, and all of a sudden, we're off of him just like that, just because he had, what, one bad year and crazy situations in Miami. But at the same time, a six-touchdown game is why everyone's all of a sudden going nuts about him. Yes, he had one of the greatest games of all time, and if you look at all the numbers, they have to go back to Dan Marino to see the last Dolphins quarterback who did anything remotely as good as that. But at the same time, everyone's talking about, oh, Tua's incredible because he threw six touchdowns. Mitch Trubisky threw six touchdowns in a game. It's happened before where guys who are not that good have thrown six touchdowns. So am I coming off of my Tua take? Am I saying that Tua's bad? No, I'm just saying that everyone overreacting to Tua doing this, and now all of a sudden Tua's great. It's just funny how the media works that that's what happens. Now, an interesting thing I saw today is someone turned a video around where Tua is now throwing right-handed. And let me tell you, it doesn't look as awkward anymore. All of a sudden, it's like, oh my God, Tua's zipping throws in there. He's fitting it in tight windows. His timing and his touch on the ball is perfect. Maybe it's just that he's a lefty and it looks weird coming out of his hand. But when he's a righty, he's actually one of the best quarterbacks and it looks really good coming out of his hand. So I think everyone is going to kind of re-change their mind, I guess, refocus or re-look at how they looked at Tua in the past. I was on this first. Let that be on the record. We could go back to the last episodes that I was on this first. I never said, though, that he's going to be Dan Marino. I think he could be a very solid, maybe winning quarterback in this league with the two great wide receivers he has and the great head coach and Mike McDaniel and offensive mind that he has. With all that, he can be a really successful quarterback in this league. But for everyone to jump on his bandwagon today and be like, oh, this guy is the greatest quarterback, I'm not going to put him in that category just yet. When you look at trends that may have continued this week, you look at the Carolina Panthers. They actually stink. Um, and that is another guy who is on the hot seat with their head coach. And it's funny, Matt Rule, a lot of Jets fans were upset that they didn't get him. He turned down the Jets job, if you remember that. Well, now look at him. He's stuck with Sam Darnold. He's stuck with Baker Mayfield. He's stuck with a bunch of former Jets. Frankie Louvu drops an interception against uh, Daniel Jones, who's a former Jet as well, and also Robbie Anderson, obviously. Carolina stinks, and I don't think that's going to improve at all this year. And Joe Burrow, he needs to protect himself. I talked about that. But if you think about the positives for Joe Burrow, that team was right there. The Cincinnati Bengals were right there despite Joe Burrow being killed all day. He almost brought them back and won. And that's why, as a trend, I don't think they're trending down even though they're 0-2. I think they'll continue to improve because I still think Joe Burrow has that in him to keep teams in it all the time. All right, I'm going to give you my picks. I'm also going to tell you my rankings. I'm now going to give you my rankings going into, I was 10 and six in my picks this week. So not great. You don't play for 10 and six, but 10 and six is good enough. Um, and I'm going to give you my tiers of the NFL teams. We talked about this. Things changed. I have last week's here and I have this week's and we'll start with the championship caliber teams. Like we talked about last week, we started with the championship caliber teams. That hasn't changed. Green Bay, Buffalo, Casey, and Tampa Bay. Now, is Tampa Bay still figuring some things out on offense? Yes. Is life without Chris Godwin and life without Gronk a little bit difficult for Tom Brady? Maybe. Is the offensive line not as good? Yeah, maybe. But I still think that defense is really good. And this could be a scenario where the defense actually carries them. And then as the season goes on, like we've seen so many times with Tom Brady, he figures it out. He's going to find who he likes, which receivers he likes, and which spots. They didn't look great in the red zone again, but again, it's been a house of horrors in New Orleans. They're going to miss Mike Evans for one game. We'll see what happens. That's really the only team on this list that gives you any pause, any question mark. But again, if you're going to have two teams from the NFC, they'd be the number two team in the NFC right now, Green Bay and then Tampa. The contenders, and there are some newcomers to the contender list, but we still have the Rams. We still have the Chargers. We still have Baltimore. Cincinnati, I put a question mark next to them because I'm a little bit scared of them, but I still think they're a contender. Like I said, I still think Joe Burrow has that in him. I added Philadelphia. I think Philadelphia, we got the answer we needed to get, which was on the quarterback. He looks really good, Jalen Hurts. And if that continues, the roster we know is really capable. They need to shore up their second halves of games. They need to close out the games a little bit better so they don't have a Baltimore situation happen to them. 
but they're really good. Speaking of Baltimore, Miami. Miami, what they did, that comeback, the two wide receivers, their defense was awful in the first half, but they really locked it down in the second half. I like what Miami is capable of, and they are in the contenders as far as playoff and maybe Super Bowl contenders. And San Francisco. Why do I end up to the contenders? Because every time Jimmy G is on this team, all of a sudden they're a contender. And that's not a knock on Trey Lance. Maybe Trey Lance will be a great quarterback in this league one day. But when Jimmy G's in there, they win. That's just a fact. As far as the pretenders, I still have the Giants in there. And I have Minnesota in there. And the reason I have Minnesota in the pretenders, uh, I still think they can make the playoffs. And they could actually win a championship. They could win a Super Bowl if they play every single game on Sundays at 1 o'clock. But the second you have to play in prime time, Kirk Cousins. I have New Orleans in there, and I have a couple of newcomers. I have Jacksonville and Arizona. Why do I have Arizona in here? I told you that I hate Arizona's roster. I think they're really bad. And yes, I do think that. But I think Kyler Murray has proven that he's such a dynamic athlete that he can carry a team. He could put a team on his back and win a game. He clearly showed that. I know it's not against the best team in the world when you're talking about the Las Vegas Raiders, but that was really impressive. And so that's why I have to put them in at least the pretenders. I can't say they're just a mediocre team when they have a guy that capable like Kyler Murray. Of course, Jacksonville, why are they the newcomers to that category? Because of everything we just told you with Doug Peterson, with Trevor Lawrence, and with how bad that division is. If they can actually win a division, then how can you not put them in the pretenders category. Next, I have in the mediocre category, I have Pittsburgh and Houston. Uh, really nothing changed. Pittsburgh, blah. Houston, the same thing. Like They're not great. They're not bad. They hung in there with Denver, but Denver's not very good. Detroit is in that category. Atlanta Falcons are in that category. Denver was lowered into that category from the pretenders category. So these teams were lowered into that category. Denver, Las Vegas, Cleveland were all lowered into that category because of how bad they looked. Dallas was also lowered into that category. Denver, I don't know what to make of them right now. Russell Wilson has looked really bad. There was a classic Colin Cowherd where there was a picture taken of Russell Wilson with a wide receiver. Uh, it was actually a running back who ran like a curl right in front of him, wide open in the end zone. And he didn't see him and he wasn't throwing it to him. And Colin Cowherd quote tweeted, it was like, wow, this must be edited. Classic, classic Colin Cowherd to think he's being duped by a fake picture online when it was actually a real picture because he's so blinded by his love for Russell Wilson. Love that. Um, but it was a real picture. Russell Wilson is the king of the checkdown. You think he'd see a running back who's turned around right in front of him. Uh, Las Vegas, like I said, I can't just can't trust them anymore. I still think they have the talent, so I'm not going to put them in the hot garbage yet, but they're rapidly going towards there. And Cleveland, till Deshaun comes back, they might just be an actual bad team. I still think they're capable of being a really good team, but... You can't get the stink of the dysfunction of Cleveland. And karma's a bitch. You know what? If you have your fans outside with signs that say rub and tug and happy endings aren't, aren't illegal and you're actually not only just uh, you know saying, okay, listen, listen, he's off the field. He's a bad dude, but he's our quarterback now in Deshaun Watson. They're embracing him and they're celebrating what Deshaun Watson did. Yeah, karma's a bitch. It's going to come for you. It's going to get you. Um, and then we have the Jets are in the me mediocre category and the Dallas Cowboys. The Jets... They're elevated. I'm sorry. There's enough talent on this team. I like the coaching staff, like I said, with LaFleur. I don't love Salah, but I think they have a capability of being pretty good. And Dallas, they're actually elevated into this category because Cooper Rush played better than Dak Prescott did, and you got to give them something for that. In the hot garbage category, I have the Tennessee Titans, the Carolina Panthers, the Indianapolis Colts, Chicago Bears. Like I said, one fluky win is not going to sway me. The Seattle Seahawks and Washington commanders all for obvious reasons to thursday night football and this game is going to be unwatchable uh honestly i think it's going to be unwatchable thursday night football cleveland is favored by minus nine and a half or minus five and a half i should say against the pittsburgh steelers to me the play in this game is the under because of how few points are generally scored on thursday night football and then this game is going to be even worse with the two quarterbacks being mitch trubisky and jacoby Brissett. But then I looked at the number and it was 38 and a half. It's hard to bet a 38 and a half and rooting for the unders are the worst. I'm still going to take the under. I still think I'm going to take Pittsburgh plus five and a half and the under because I think it'll be a close game. I think it'll be a bad game, but I think it'll be close. I think Cleveland will win, but I don't think they'll cover. I think Cleveland will beat Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh will cover the five and a half. And I think it does go under 38 and a half. Basically, what I'm saying is I'm going to have a horrible time watching this game and I won't enjoy it at all. I think the Browns, they're a classic team that this happens to them every time and then they start to lose it mentally and they start to fall apart. That could happen for them. All right, I need to wrap it up quickly because I'm heading to New York. Before I do, 
the euphoria of the Mets making the playoffs and how crazy they went on the field and after the game last night reminded me that not every team makes the playoffs every year. And while it sucks what I have with the Yankees and all the different struggles or quote unquote that they have, at least I'm not a Mets fan. And I have to remember that making the playoffs and being there every year is something to celebrate and something to be proud of. And the fact that if the Yankees pull it together, we haven't seen them play well in three months. But if they pull it together, they have the talent on the team to be a championship contender. I don't know. I guess I should be happy with that. And uh, now I'm going to throw it to myself because I'm going to wrap it up. We'll see what happened with Aaron Judge. I'm going to recap my night. So stick around. Here's me. All right. It's now uh, Wednesday. Um, I got home at like 2.30, 2.45 in the morning. So recording a little bit late, still trying to uh, recover from last night. Uh, just the drive in and out real quick. And that was crazy and just still watching the videos going back and seeing everything is nuts um but I, I will give this as a lesson to everyone who's listening right now you've heard the top of the podcast you then heard the whole episode you heard everything but just to wrap it up um i always say this you're never going to regret going when it comes to events like these and you'll always regret not going and i can't even imagine the people who left early what they're feeling today um but you know, for me, like I said, I went because it was a moment that I had an opportunity to go. And I understand if you can't, that's one thing, but I had the opportunity. So I, I went and uh, it's something I'm going to remember forever. So, um, you know, I talked about it that now the Yankees are must watch the rest of the week. Uh, I think if Judge hits 61 or doesn't get to 61, 62, I think I'd watch that game over Thursday night football, which is not going to be a great game. Um and so if you have the opportunity, though, on Wednesday, Thursday to go to a game, you definitely should because it's it's really special. Every time he comes up to the plate, it's special with a chance for him to tie Maris now and then break that record. It's going to continue to be awesome. So I, I'd strongly advise it. I don't know if you're going to get what we got last night, but um, it's awesome. Um, and really, if you think about the last three days in New York sports, the Jets and the Giants win on Sunday, obviously the crazy win for the Jets. The Mets clinch the playoffs. Uh, not often that they do that. So the Mets clinch the playoffs for the first time since 2016 on Monday. And then Tuesday, Aaron Judge does what he does. It's been a special three days for New York sports and thus a special three days on this podcast. It really has been. Um, so I'm glad everyone is along for the ride. Everyone is, uh, is listening. I really appreciate it. Another point on Giancarlo Stanton. He was booed. I mentioned this. He was booed in the previous at-bat. When you overcome the boos, the cheers are so much louder. And he's posted on Instagram last night after the game with just like kind of pictures. And him and Judge both posted pictures of the two of them and, the, and videos of the two of them. And it was about the team and it was about the win. And it was about the moments together. And then Stanton's caption was just, booyah, which is awesome. I love, I love Stanton. He, I, it's actually weird because I've booed Stanton in the past when I was there last night and he was getting booed, I did not boo, which is I'm I boo. If you've seen the video of me in Detroit with Garrett Cole from earlier in the season, I'm a booer. Um, but, you know, he has earned the right to not get booed. I know he goes through these cold streaks, but he's been as clutch of a player uh, for the Yankees recently. Um, a couple other things. Also, the ballpark was awesome last night. And Aaron Judge, after the game, they're talking about him doing it as a Yankee, doing it in Yankee uniform. He even posted, this is for you, Yankee Universe. That was his caption on Instagram. I mean, just give Judge the lifetime contract. Give him 10 years, $500 million. And can you imagine if he did that? Like, even with the Mets making the playoffs this year for the first time since 16, they have like 25,000 people at the ballpark. Can you imagine doing that there? I don't think you could, Judge. But then again, still on the Yankees. Give him 10 years, $500 million. You just have to. You played the game. You gambled. You lost. You didn't really lose because getting this for the greatest offensive season maybe ever from a Yankee in a Yankee uniform is just uh, incredible to watch. And it's been an awesome experience. Um, and that's really that's all I got. Um, that's that's going to do it for the episode. We do have a giveaway running live now. So if you go on our Instagram, go on our Twitter, check us out. Um, we have a giveaway, two tickets to a future Jets game, the Jets against uh, the Lions on December 18th, I think it is. So check it out online to enter, to qualify, uh, to get two, win two tickets to see the Jets at MetLife Stadium. That's pretty fun, uh, something we're doing for the podcast. So definitely check that out. Of course, like, subscribe, share it as always. And until next time, what a crazy day. I'm going to be recording. Oh, I'm going to be recording again, uh, maybe later Thursday night, early Friday morning, one of the two. So uh, I'll see you guys then. You were the best nights of my life You got the light that always shines 
I miss the way that you move and the way I get high When you take me to your eyes Like I'm standing in the sky I see your subway cars and your old graffiti I breathe your air when I land in another city I'll be that one that's got you printed on my bones Yeah, you're all I know Everywhere I go, oh, oh, I ain't changed it all oh, oh, Always on my road, I'm still New York You're the only oh, 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 that I'll ever know My concrete walls, I'm still New York I'm still New York Oh, I'm still New York Yeah, I wanna drive down Riverside See the birds flying on the high line With the sidewalks burning, we pray for rain in July I want the Yankees 99 yeah. And the Knicks on a sold out night When the curtains close and the Broadway streets are alive hey. I need your heartbeat close, don't you ever leave me And I breathe your air when I land in another city And I'll be that one that's got My time's being just a kid with that empire state of mindset. Kick flipping off a blind deck, dipping from the New York City's finest. Yeah, said I've been up on my New York shit, walking down the block with my New York bitch. I can never leave my city, ain't nothing like it. Even if I do, though, I can never hide it. Top down on the west side when I'm driving, east side be the only side that I'm riding.